All right, awesome. Well, I appreciate the welcome. It's a little bit undue because I might have preached a couple times in junior high or in high school, but I haven't preached much since then. So it's a bit nerve-wracking getting up here today and doing it in front of all of you guys. Um, But I want to jump right in today to what I've got to share with you, and I'm going to do things a little bit different. I just kind of want to talk through a scripture and then talk through it in my life and how it's worked out. So I think it's going to be on the screens for you, but Luke 10, starting with verse 25, it says, Just then a religious, and this is in the message version for those of you who don't know, uh, just then a religious scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? He answered, What's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer, muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half for dead. I kind of want to pause right there and take a moment, and if you'll just indulge me for a second, I want to sit back to a time in my life where, no, I've never felt beat up and left on the side of the road. I've never had a band of robbers mug me. I've never had anything similar in that way to this story, but I do think that there's times in most of our lives that at some point we experience some sort of emotional trauma or something that goes on that there is times where I have thought, I would have rather felt beat up than feel the way that I'm feeling right now. And it leaves you left feeling like you're on the side of the road, stranded, and there's nowhere to go. So that time in my life for me, most particular, was going into my freshman year of college. For those of you who don't know, I'm a family person through and through. I mean, my family moved six hours from where they were right now. And of course, I'm sitting here preaching in their church today. So was, always am, always will be a family person. So it was a bit amazing, I think, to everyone involved when I announced that I was going to go to school five hours away because my dream was to live at home. My dream was to buy the house that my parents lived in, buy the property next to it. They would build there. My grandparents already lived two doors down, and we were just basically going to have like a little commune, you know. Our church was on the same road already. It just was, it was, it was a perfect plan in my dream world, and that's how it was going to end, and that's how it was going to stay. So this idea of moving was a bit scary. And at the same time, I had been a best friends with this guy all the way through high school, and I knew we were probably getting pretty near dating, and I was nervous to leave that behind because most people know long-distance relationships don't typically work. And so I'm just scared about all these transitions and all these things that we're going through, and I announced that I'm leaving for school. Um, so my freshman year, I walk into it probably very excited a little bit scared, but mostly just arrogantly believing that nothing in life was going to change, that the only distance between me and my former life was going to be five-hour drive, and I was going to make that like every weekend. And so I just really didn't uh, prepare myself well for the fact that life was about to change in a major sort of way. To top matters off, I go to school. I do start dating this guy that had been my best friend. So we're doing this long-distance relationship. And, I mean, it was one of these ridiculous relationships that you only see on, like, weirdo movies where, like, I was, like, three hours a day was, like, my average phone call time between, like, my parents, this guy, like, all these different people that I was calling. It got so bad to the point that my parents had to call me and say, stop, we paid your phone bill, but you're paying us back. It was $200 over this month. And it wasn't for text messaging or Internet. It was minutes. I mean, I was using that many minutes that I was going over just trying to keep up with this life that I had at home that I loved. 
And yet at the same time, it was keeping me from emotionally connecting to anything new that I was trying to do. So I wasn't really involved in school in any massive sort of way. And to make matters weirder at school, I got this roommate that we were like totally opposites. I don't know how we took the same test and they put us together. I mean, she liked like screamo music, which is fine. I, I get that other people like different music than me, but she only liked it after midnight, it seemed like, you know? <laughs> so it's like I'm in this class, you know, like all day long. I, I work full time while I'm going to school. I'm calling three hours a day. And so by the time I hit the bed at night, like I am ready for like the five hours of sleep I've allotted myself. And she is just playing this music at crazy noise levels. And I can't get her to seem to understand that I really do need my sleep. I'm not joking. I know she can nap, but I can't, you know. We can't seem to get that worked out. And then she likes everything cold. And I am cold-blooded. I mean, I, I hate things cold. And she, I mean, needed the room to be below 60 degrees at all time. And she lived in Colorado. And they always saved on their electricity by, like, not turning on heat for half the winter. And so, I mean, she just genuinely loved it freezing. And our room, the only way to keep it cold because our, you know, system was out of date or whatever was that there was a window, but it was right next to my bed. And so she would keep the window open and I would shut the window all the time. And it was just like this war between the thermostat and the window of like us trying to get the perfect temperature in the room. And uh, with the window being right by my bed, I was like constantly having this cold. It was constantly freezing, not sleeping at night, listening to screamo music. She's, you know, lifting the window while... and our beds were bunked. So I would shut the window, and in the middle of the night, as soon as she felt like I had fallen asleep, she would, like, lean back over and pull the window back up. So it was, like, in the middle of the night, I would wake up and shut the window, and we had this war going all night long. So to top that off, like, it would rain sometimes, and it would come in through the window, and she didn't care because it didn't hit her bed. So, I mean, like, I was getting rained on in the middle of the night, like, waking up, like, soaking wet and, like, going to sleep on the floor, and I mean, so, like, my, in my mind, we were not good roommates, and I thought it was clear, and, you know, so I, they give us this form mid-semester that it's like, do you want to switch roommates? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm going to switch roommates next semester. And I didn't even think to tell her about it, so after I fill it out that night, I was like, by the way, I filled out that form, did you? And she's like, yeah, I signed up for you as my roommate. And I'm, like, in shock, because I'm like, really? Because I, like, nothing's worked out so far, you know, so I, I, I had to tell her what I did and it immediately made her angry and sad and it was like all of the rejection she'd ever received in her entire life was like compiled on like I was her problem now. And so like everything from I would walk out of my room to go to the water fountain down the hall and if I left my keys in my room, she would lock me out. So I was getting locked out almost every night because I don't learn my lesson very well. And like I would, I would get locked out of my room and I couldn't get back into the room. And so I would sleep either in my car or in the lobby or like go to a friend's room who would have mercy on me and like just sleep in this room and like tried to make it through the semester. And my RA was a very nice person, but she was one of these over spiritual types. Like every thing was spiritual, nothing was practical. And so I would go to her and ask her for help and she would say, I think you haven't prayed about it enough. And I'm like, I'm praying. (laughs) Like, I've done everything I can to move me out of this situation. And I mean, even to the point when they finally did move me out of the situation, she was so mad about it that I, like, ran out of the room because she was throwing all of my stuff at me. And, like, we ended up having to go to, like, counseling and anger management stuff together because, like, of how bad the situation had, like, gotten in our room. So it was just this really weird situation of going to school, experiencing all this. I love home. I hate school. Nothing's going right. 
And uh, I mean, it, it got so bad that at one point I almost switched schools. I thought, okay, next semester I'm just transferring to the community college. I don't care what scholarships I give up to do it. I'm coming back home. And I don't really even know why it happened, but I ended up going back the second semester, um, kind of begrudgingly going back the next semester. And after Christmas break, my mom came to visit me, and she just said, Natalie, if you could do anything when you come home this summer, anything at all, your biggest dream, what would it be? And almost without stutter, I think I answered her that there was this go-kart track in our town that had been shut down, and I really wanted to reopen it and try my hand at business and like run this as a seasonal business and hire some people and like get the economy back going. Like I had big dreams for a really little place. So it was a bit above my um, ability to probably succeed, but that's only seen in retrospect. So I'm, you know, really kind of dreaming this, but just we're, we're having a joking conversation or what most people would consider to be a joking conversation. But I took that conversation seriously and called the owner of the go-kart track, ended up signing a lease, went to the business department. They helped me get my business paperwork in line. I had no idea what I was signing. I was just like, sure, that sounds good, you know. We're business. So um, we, I sign all that stuff, get involved in this lease. I'm, you know, spring break comes along my parents decide to take a family trip to Gatlinburg where they invite my boyfriend along it was a trip where like for once I just felt like at home and at peace we went hiking and we went skiing and we just did all sorts of fun stuff and I remember just all these weights of things going on at school just explaining them to my family and to my boyfriend and I remember my boyfriend at the time just promising me that he would always be there for a call whenever I needed it and to quit holding this stuff in and I'm like (laughs) I didn't even know I was holding anything we're talking three hours a day, you know, so it was just kind of a weird, a weird time in my life. Um, so I get back from spring break, finals rolls around that second semester. We're getting into final season. It's crunch time. It's busy. I notice something's going, is off in my relationship, but I can't quite figure it out. So I just confront him and say, hey, something's weird. What's up? He says, I'll tell you, but not until April 15th. April 15th is like a week away. I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, like a girl, I'm dramatic, you know, I'm dealing with like, how am I going to wait a week to know? And uh, so I, I'm just preparing myself for the worst, you know, just wondering what, could, what this could possibly be. And I, you know, I, t- I told my friend Jonathan recently, like I, I kind of thought that like the friends line, like, like let's, let's just be friends was a, uh, like a blow off. It was someone being a total wimp and not willing to say what it was. But I unfortunately didn't get that conversation. I got a conversation that gave me all the reasons, and the reasons were, you know, all this list of things that I, my teeth weren't straight, I wasn't pretty enough, I'm too forward, I'm too much of a leader, I'm, you know, like, I mean, I literally got, like, a, a list out of all of these things, and it came crashing in on me, and it sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous to be devastated by a freshman year relationship. Everyone knows that freshman year relationships aren't going to work out. Everyone knows that long-distance relationships generally don't work out. But in my mind, I mean, maybe you've got to understand my family thing. I've got my parents sitting here who my mom started dating my dad when she was 18 years old, was married when she was 19. She was in college. It's the first guy that she's ever kissed or ever dated. And they're sitting here today happy. And so... <laughs> And I actually hate that story. So, (laughs) no, um, but I just did think that that was probably going to be somewhat what my story would end up like, and it would just all be clean cut and clear, and um, not that their life is that clean cut and clear, but that's how I saw it in my freshman freshman mind. And so I went to, um, so I, I, I make it through finals week. I'm really not sure how. I think my roommate probably helped me through papers and tests and everything. I mean, I generally don't remember that, you know, next couple of weeks very, very well, and even recalling it closer to the time that it happened. I didn't, didn't recall it very well. 
But I pulled myself together just enough because I knew I was going home and I had signed up for a business. Like, and it was dawning on me, I have no idea what I'm doing, but <laughs> I've signed the lease, so I better make money because I'm now you know, going to pay a monthly fee whether I like it or not. So I go home and I start this business and I made this mistake of hiring friends. And I hired mutual friends of my ex-boyfriend and I, so that made matters really complicated because not only did they not respect me as a manager, so when I said, like, go mow the lawn, they took it as, like, a suggestion. And I was like, no, actually, the lawn hasn't been mowed in three weeks because you took it as a suggestion in the last two, you know? Like, we really need to get some of this stuff done. And they, um, so, so that was really awkward because I lost, like, a, you know, I wasn't, I was always a person that had a couple close friends, not a huge group of friends. So I was losing my close friends. I had lost a relationship. I didn't feel like I was managing well in school. Um, and so, the, and, and to make matters, you know, whatever, I just had that crazy belief that like everything like takes off from the front end. And so I was barely making payroll every week. So I'm just like stressed out to the max, like thinking like, how am I going to make this work? I wonder how utilities are going to come in. Are we going to be able to pay these people if this doesn't happen? Oh, great. My friends that already don't, aren't really my friends anymore are going to hate me when I don't pay them for all the work that they've done. That kind of thing is just going through my mind on a constant basis. And I, I can't quite keep up with it. So we go to, um, we kind of fast forward a little bit and, um, you know, a small town is a great thing to grow up in. And I loved growing up in the small town I was. It was like 8,000 people. And there's a lot of advantages to it. But there was also a lot of disadvantages. And the disadvantage was that if a rumor went around, it went around fast. And, like, all 8,000 people knew it, like, in a day. And so this crazy rumor got started that somehow, like, how could Natalie Nordstrom, whose parents are pastors and obviously don't make that much money, have gotten enough money to start a go-kart track? Well, what they didn't know is, like, it just wasn't that much money. All the stuff was already there. But... Uh, in people's minds, they don't realize, you know, what, what it took or didn't take to start the business. And so this rumor went around that I had either stolen money or somehow laundered money from the church in order to, like, start this crazy business. And so I remember, like, it being in the business one night, already feeling like a failure. My ex-boyfriend had showed up to talk to the friends about me and how terrible of a manager I was. And then I have some guy walk in the go-kart track that I've never met in my life that I can remember and, like, say, oh, yeah, I used to go to your church until I found out that, you know, the pastor's daughter was money laundering and, you know, like, just start saying all this stuff in front of paying customers and in front of employees. And I'm just like wrecked, you know, I I don't know what to do. And like, just to get him out of the way of the other customers and like not sour their experience. I'm like, I'll give you a discount on go-karts. Let's go. You can pay afterwards, you know, like hurry him over to the go-karts to like get him on a go-kart and not have this conversation in front of people. So we get him on the go-karts and of course I've got no help from my employees because they hate me. (laughs) And um, we're dealing with all this. And, you know, someone gave me some counsel just saying, Natalie, you're overwhelmed, you're overworked, you know, just take a day off, take a break, step back, and you'll be able to step back in a little more refreshed. So I took a day off, and I had my sister fill my spot where I was going to be on shift that next night. And she was my best employee by far, and despite the fact that she had done everything right and every process was followed probably more than I would have followed it, um, we had an accident that night at the go-kart track. And someone had been riding a go-kart, and they'd already gotten two warnings, and it threw her off the track. So they're riding in this go-kart, and they lean back to look to see if one of their friends was coming up on them. When they lean back, they lean down and touch their hand to the ground, and not paying attention, sped directly toward a rail and got their hand in between a rail and a, uh, in the go-kart itself and lost part of a finger. 
So then I had a birthday party that had just showed up full of kids, you know, like younger kids. And this kid, has lo- uh, this college student has lost his finger on a go-kart and he's holding his finger, jumps out of the car while everyone is still like riding around, like jumping over cars, trying to get off the track, holding a finger. He's dragging blood across the go-kart track, you know, so like I've got a trail of blood that's probably still there to this day. People don't know what it is, but it's blood. So they've got blood, you know, and he runs past a group of kids who are like, you know, like screaming because someone has lost a part of his finger. And I mean, at his very own fault. But so I get this call. It's like my one day off. Right. And I'm like, I've literally gone to another town and I'm not answering my phone intentionally. And the town was only like 20 minutes away. But still, but my sister calls incessantly enough that I answer the phone and find out what's happened. And I had never been a business owner, but I had been a pastor's daughter. And so my initial reaction was like, oh, so we go to the hospital and pray for him. And so, like, that was just what I thought you did. So I go to the hospital, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to pray for this guy, you know. Maybe he'll get better, or, like, maybe it'll make him feel better. I'm not sure what that's supposed to do. But so we go to the hospital, and the first thing out of his mouth is, my dad's a lawyer, and we're going to sue you for everything you have. And I'm like, can I pray for you? You know, like, it doesn't work at that point. Like, (laughs) it just really doesn't work at that point. And so I... um. So I go home, just cry my eyes out. You know, I'm overwhelmed. I can't, can't figure out how to keep up in my life. And, uh, and I remember calling a business professor that night, and he laughed, and he said, do you remember any of the paperwork we filled out? And I was like, no. He's like, you're incorporated. You have insurance. You're fine. Like, you know, just this falls under all that stuff that we did. And I'm like, oh, thank God. I wasn't paying attention at all. But then he also kind of laughed, and he said, are you making that good of money? Like, does he know? They, like, you know, because I had talked to him before and kind of let him know, give him updates on how the business went. And I was like, oh, that's true. He could really only go after me for, like, the $200 in my bank account or the 2000 in student debt that I have. So, I mean, even in reality, if he finds a way around the incorporation, my assets are not looking pretty. They're not worth the lawyer fee, even if it's your dad. So, I mean, it just was a weird, weird time. So the day before I'm about to go back to school for my first semester of my sophomore year, I get, um, my parents normally would do some sort of send-off for us, and they would um, invite people over the house, or we would all go out to eat, and everybody would say goodbye, that was all your friends. Well, I had lost all my friends, and I didn't feel very successful, and I felt like a failure, so I really wanted to be alone, even though I'm an extrovert. They convinced me to invite like just a couple people that we trusted over the house for a pizza party, so we go and eat pizza. And I noticed my family disappearing to the back room kind of one by one and a little weird, but it didn't really blip the map at that point. And my mom finally called me and said, hey, Natalie, come here. So I walked back to her room and her room, which normally looks kind of clean. <laughs> no, it's, it's generally pretty clean. Is, um, it looked like a war zone and it was clear someone had broken in and it just hadn't shown up in the front rooms. And so I thought, oh, no. I am an idiot. I never set up a night deposit for my business. I just assumed I could always take it on Mondays. And so the weekends were where we made the majority of our money. And, um, you know, in order to make payroll as slim a margins as I was on, I had to have a weekend. And so I think, oh, no, I've got a lot of money sitting in my room, and that's probably what this person is after. So I run down to my room, and sure enough, the money's gone. And I had packed for school, and I hate packing. I mean, I hate it with a passion. And everything that I had packed was undone, like everything. There was nothing folded even left. It was like every shirt was like, you know, like they had just like, maybe she had money in this shirt. Like, I don't know what they were thinking. But it was all across the room, and I just 
looked at their room and remembered thinking like, this is the state of my life. This is what it's come to. I'm like a complete wreck. My money's gone. I fail at everything. I have no friends. Like I've failed at a relationship. I'm, it's just like the ultimate feeling of failure was on me. So I go back to school, but nobody knows at school that I'm a failure, you know, because all this has kind of happened like at home like in life. And so these business professors keep asking me to speak in their classes because I'm like the only business student that actually has a business. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, do I out myself and tell them that I'm a complete failure or do I fake it and like fake it? So I, you know, wasn't going to fake it, but then I heard the words extra credit points and I knew that I was going to be needing them because I wasn't keeping up with everything. And so I thought, well, all right, I'm going to speak in these classes. So I, I spoke in this class. It was a really large class. And afterwards, everyone in the class, like then it thinks I'm some like business guru genius and I'm like, I'm getting sued. I'm like, you know, I'm failing at everything. But that's all right, because my class thinks I'm awesome. So I, I go back to class. My RA is in my same class. She, she comes over to me, like, right before a test, and she's like, I'm sitting by you today. And I was like, cool. She's like, yeah, I didn't study for the test last night. I'm, I'm going to copy your test. Well, like, I have a big issue, because she's going to cheat And not only is she going to cheat, I wouldn't be okay with her cheating, but we're about to get caught. Because she thinks I'm going to get an A, and that's why she's cheating. I'm going to fail it. I haven't studied either, and I know it. And, like, I'm banking on those extra credit points. Like, honestly, I, I already knew, like, I was fine to fail the test. And so I'm thinking in my mind, oh, no. Like, we might not get caught if this was a 94. This is a 46. This is a 46. I'm about to get on this. Like, I had calculated in my mind that's about what I could pull off, you know, like, which is ridiculous. I didn't. I think I got a 70. So, I mean, I, um, I had to go to the professor after, and I begged her not to do it. I mean, I just begged her and begged, and she just wouldn't believe me. She's like, we all know you're being modest. You're a business genius. <sighs> so I go to the professor after class, and I just have to tell him. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to tell you who, but someone sitting around me was cheating off me all tests, and I happen to live on her floor, and I'm under her leadership, and so I can't really talk about it. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm sorry, you need to move me in the class. I don't know how you're going to pull this off, but like, I, I can't get the person to stop cheating off me. Like I can't. And so he ended up moving me around. But then of course the professor then thinks, well, not only is she a business genius, she's like got integrity and, you know, like really encouraged me to like study for the next test. And like, I'm like, I'm telling this guy, you don't understand. I'm running a business remotely. I'm working full-time at school. I'm doing school. I'm still calling my family rather frequently. And, like, I can't possibly manage all this. And he's like, well, you're in school. That's your primary purpose in life right now is school, you know. Like, of course, coming for a professor, that's true. But I have to work to pay for this thing that I'm doing right now. So we're, we're kind of in this argument. And, and I ended up not doing well on a second test. And he just very clearly expressed his disappointment in me and I go to work at the cafeteria one day which by the way is a humiliating job wearing a hairnet in front of the rest of your class so I'm serving like mashed potatoes or something turn around and I'm working on the sink and don't see that he's come up to my line I don't know how long he was there but I you know hear him uh after a second and turn around and he must have been there for a while because he turned around and just said oh I can see that you take your job as seriously as you take your classes and just kind of like made a real dig at me. And I, I had to ask to leave the cafe. Like I just said, I'm going home. I'm really sorry. Something's come up. Like I just left crying. You know, I went back to my room and just remember this complete, complete feeling of failure. Um, 
just that year, I think I was just, I was like mad at God. I was mad at myself. I was mad at my friends. I was mad at, I was just mad at everything. I mean, I, I couldn't get one single thing in my life that I felt like was together. And to be frank about it, I mean, I think in some ways I felt probably like this guy in the story did, like I'm left on the side of the road. I really don't know what I'm going to do because, you know, I'm a business major, but I suck at business. So, you know, that's in my mind what's going on. And, uh, and, I, and I just want to pause there and take a minute and just go back to this Bible verse that we're at. So the next verse says, Luckily a priest is on his way down the same road. But when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite, a religious man, showed up. He also avoided the injured man. And I've heard this story a lot of times, and it was said, you know, I've, I've heard it preached like, you know, the priest didn't do well, the blah, blah, blah didn't do well. I can tell you that I relied on a lot of people in my life during that time. And there was no one, no religious man who could have saved me from the situation that I was in. I mean, no one. No one who passed me in my situation. I, I, I tried. I mean, I, re, I relied on everyone I could rely on. And it, you know, I, I, I failed. And so going back to the story, it says, A Samaritan traveling upon the road came upon him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. So I'm sitting in this chapel service one day because I went to a Christian school and they had chapels. And quite honestly, I wasn't really listening. I wasn't listening to the songs, the sermon, to whatever. But I heard this one line and this one song that made me think for the rest of the entire chapel and probably the day about it. And it just said, the blood, it is my victory. And I just, like my initial reaction to it was like confusion, I guess. What do you mean the blood? It is my victory. Like, I get that it's a victory. I get that, like, Christ died for us and that it's, like, a victorious moment in my life. But, like, the blood, it is my victory. Like, as, like, as if victory is, like, a one thing, you know, like a, like, no, I'm, I'm a failure. Like, you know, I might have this victory, but I'm, I'm failing. And so I got thinking, like, well, I think I believe the blood is my victory, but if I believe that the blood is my victory, then... I guess these failing things just doesn't matter as much in context of what I've been given. And I just remember thinking, but am I really okay with that? Because it's okay right now, but like my worst fear was that this wasn't going to end. Like what if I fail at everything else I do in life? What if I try to open a million more businesses and they never work? Or what if I go to work for an employer and I don't do well at that? Or what if I fail every class that I have because I can't keep up because I'm working full-time and doing this full-time? And what if, like, I never have a relationship that pans out? And what if, like, my sense of home never comes back because I've ruined home because I've failed all the time at home? And my school doesn't feel like home because my family's not there, so I really never get that sense of home. Am I okay? Because I'm really scared of all these failing things that can happen to me, and I just remember crying out to God and saying, yes, I believe the blood is my victory. Help me to believe that the blood is my victory. Help me to believe that despite any failings that I'm having or that I might have, God, I pray that if everything else in my life is as horrible as I'm doing right now, God, that I can see in it through a different context that the blood is my victory and God please don't make that a curse on me because I don't want to fail at everything else in life. You know, I think that's somewhat how the prayer ended. But I just, I just very much remember that, um, not necessarily fixing me because I still felt like a failure, but helping me to relook, relook at what happened. But going back to the scripture, the story doesn't even really make sense. I mean, like the 
no one could save me, right? So who is this good Samaritan who can save you? Like, it, the story literally doesn't make sense. He's a good Samaritan. Like, Samaritans were almost like a cuss word in the Jewish language. They were the half-breeds, the nobodies, the people who weren't supposed to succeed. They were, you know, just looked down upon in society. I mean, you know, Harry Potter, I think, would call it the mudbloods. The, you know, the, I mean, they were just, like, completely the, the outcasts of society, the half-breeds. And I I just got thinking about the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, the blood is my victory, the Good Samaritan, the blood is my victory. Wait a minute, what if the Good Samaritan, for me, is Jesus Christ? I mean, the half-breed, the one who is God and man, the one who, it, it doesn't make sense that a human could save me. I tried all the humans I knew, you know, like, no one was clearing me of my situation, nobody was helping me through it, and despite all their tries, it didn't work because... I mean, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So the good Samaritan, the good human, Jesus Christ, to me, is who I found in that story. If you go back to the scripture, it says, Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on the way back. Normally I hear a sermon kind of end here and say, go and do like the Good Samaritan. WWJD, do it, you know, that's Jesus, do it. And, you know, it's a good ending to a story. Do I want to be like Jesus? Absolutely. I I do want to be like Jesus, but I find myself trying and I fail every time. But I think there's a story or a character that we oftentimes don't focus on in the story. We we always talk about the, the guy on the side of the road and we always talk about the Good Samaritan but we don't often talk about the innkeeper. And so I just thought about this story about the innkeeper, and I think we get a hint into the innkeeper's purpose when it says, uh, take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you back, pay you on my way back. And I think about that, and I think, like, that sounds a lot like another promise that we're given, like, right near the Great Commission, where we're told, like, to go and make disciples of the earth, but then we're told, you know, that, that he'll pay us back. Um, with eternal life, with heaven, we'll see some of that blessing on earth, but we're also going to see some of that blessing in heaven. And so to me in this story, I've, I began to see the innkeeper in a new light because maybe, at the, you know, maybe the innkeeper is the church. And if it's the church, then, I mean, it makes the church's calling really simple. We're just supposed to take care of people. We're supposed to take care of all those that Jesus brings to us. We're supposed to take care of the bound, the addicted by life, those that are just failing, those who are succeeding, the wounded that he's paid the price for. I mean, all the people that he brings to us off the side of the road, our calling, our, our goal, our purpose, I guess, as the church would be to do that. And I think even there, the story sounds neatly tied up, but it's not. I mean, if you think about it, I really like crisp, clean endings where I know where it ended. Like, it's clear, but it doesn't. It doesn't give us this, like, and now the guy got better. The innkeeper, like, got his pay. Um, you know, the Good Samaritan came back at X time. It doesn't tell us any of that. It's like a bizarre story. I don't like it. I don't, if there's any Gilmore Girl fans in the room, I'm not going to give away what I watched the other day. <laughs> but it's very frustrating because I waited seven years to get an ending, and they left more open than they, the last ending I didn't really like, but it would have been better. There was more closing there than there is now. 
And I, I feel that way a little bit about this story. It's like, well, tell me when the Good Samaritan's coming back to give me my pay. You know, I'm taking care of these people. And it, it doesn't. And I kind of wonder if the ending isn't left somewhat open for a reason. Um, I, think there's, I think it's an optional ending. I think it's kind of a call to the church of like, what are we going to do about it? And I think the Bible gives us a little bit of insight into an alternate ending when you see someone who is literally in need of deliverance, a pregnant woman on a donkey on her way on a road from Jerusalem, not to Jericho this time, but to Bethlehem and Luke 2. And you see, you know, her go knock on a door, like, like literally knock on a door. She needs deliverance, like she needs a baby delivered right now. And she goes knocking on a door, and we're told there's no room for you in the inn. And I think that that's a very scary and very real call to the church because the story is left open. That can be our ending. I mean, our ending can be there's no room. There's, there's no room in the inn. You know, we've got our nice church. We've got our nice family. We've got, you know, I've got all the friends I need. I've got, I've got what I need here. I've got, you know, community. I've got all of this. And yet, what I would say to the church of Jesus Christ, or what I would say to the, the good Samar- uh, to the church of the Good Samaritan, is he paid the price. He took beating. He took pain. He's paying us back. He's doing all of this. And I would hate, I would hate to be the one who answered the door and said, there's no room for you in the end. Because ultimately, when we don't take what Jesus has brought in, we don't take Jesus. I mean, we see that in the story where Jesus wasn't welcome, wasn't welcome. And the God who used a barn to bring his glory into the world, I'd much prefer that he bring it in through us and through our church. And so I'd say that there's a lot of people in Knoxville that are in a ditch. And it's not like that's my one story of like, I was in a ditch and now I'm great. Like, I go back to the ditch from time to time more frequently than I like to admit. And I find myself there. And um, I would say that there's just a lot of people there, a lot of people in Knoxville, a lot of people in our world that need us, that need the church. And I think the story sounds really nice. Um, you really think about what the innkeeper probably had to do. He probably had to clean wounds until late in the night to make sure it was ha- you know, happening. His job probably really wasn't glorious. I mean, not even all of his pay comes in the story. And so if you think about what the innkeeper does, it's not a particularly glamorous job. And I'd say that there are people in Knoxville that are experiencing their first Christmas alone. And I'd say make room because the innkeeper, it's our job to make room. Uh, There are probably people that are going through drug withdrawals today that need someone's hand to hold. And if the innkeeper doesn't make room, who's going to? I mean, we're the church of Jesus Christ after all. I'd say that the homeless people that we see as clogging up our streets in downtown Knoxville that are clogging up Broadway and Magnolia today, well, the story sounds nice until you realize that that becomes our problem. You know, and, and uh, until we realize that we can't just protest abortion, that we have to open our homes because it's not success when we just give another failure to the foster care system. It, it's not success. And I would say that there are a lot of people in a lot of different situations, and your road doesn't look similar to my road in likelihood. I hope that you haven't failed as many times as I have. I hope that's the end of my failing, but I know it's not because it continues to happen. <laughs> but 
what I would say to us today is make room. Because God is here and he's knocking on our door. And I think literally the good Samaritan is knocking on our door and he's asking us what we will do. And the, and the story is open. It's our ending. It's, it's life church's ending. It's every, it's every church in America. It's every church across the world. You know, it's easy to make things other people's problems. You know, like hope Donald Trump figures out what to do with the refugees. Like, I mean, Jesus, Jesus put them at our door. Um, so what I would say is, you know, what I'd like to challenge us to do today is I, maybe you're great and you figured out how to WWJD better than I have and maybe you see yourself as the Good Samaritan in the story, but I think it's more, more likely than not that most of us find ourselves sitting in one of two places. We're either today, we're by a ditch, and we don't really know how to get out and we're in a bit of a stuck place and you've tried a lot of things and it's not working. Or maybe today you've been in these seats for a long time and you've been out of the ditch and you've been saved by the Good Samaritan. Well, your story's not over, just like this story isn't over. And there's continuance in life and no matter what age you're at or no matter what in life you're at or no matter what experience you have or what experience you don't have, your story isn't over. And our job is to continue this cycle that as Jesus brings people to us, that we take care of them. And, and I believe that God needs to do something in all of our hearts. And I don't want to say this as judgmental because I think one of the compliments that we get to our church is that we're hospitable and that we reach out and that we're open. But in reality, if you look around, there's a lot more people hurting on the side of the road in Knoxville than there are in this room. So we've got to continue to be open and hospitable and understanding of people who are going through struggles that aren't yours because yours aren't pretty to them either. So again, I think my challenge is just to make room and I'd like to bow our heads today and close our eyes. God, I just want to pray for anyone in this room, God, who like me, like, like where I am often, God, is beside a ditch, in a ditch, God, feeling beat up and left alone, God, not knowing where to go or what direction, not understanding what we did wrong to get there, maybe understanding very clearly what we did wrong to get there. But God, we're in a ditch. And we need something that no religious man can offer us. We need something that no priest could save us from, that no Levite could pass us on the road and give us help, God. We need a good Samaritan. We need Jesus Christ. We need you in this room today, God. God, and we just ask, God, that you touch us in our lives, God. God, I just picture in this story you carrying the cross, and that cross was that man on the side of the road. When he should have been walking himself to an end, God, you you took him on your back and you carried him. And God, there's some of us here today, God, that need carried, God. We can't carry ourselves right now. So God, we just pray that your presence and that your spirit, God, would come upon us, God, and that the good Samaritan that we read about in this story, God, would be so evident in our church here today, God. And if there's any of you that would like to, for the first time or, or for the, a renewed time, answer that call today, I would suggest that you really pray about this. And we'll have people after church that'll be up here at the altar and we'd be happy to talk to you, pray with you, really talk through our journeys. 
But God, I also just pray for our church. God, I pray that we're not like the inn that we read about in Luke 2, that there's no room left in. God, we want to play a place, God, that brings healing to Knoxville. Not just so we can become a big church with big numbers, with extra seats that financially does well, but God's because there are people that need what I've already found in you, and I can show them that. God, we just pray, God, that you would fill our house with healing and hope, God. We pray that you would help us to know what we can do within our community, God, to spread your love and your joy, God. God, we pray that you would bring more people, more and more people, God, who are in their lives who need this right now, God. God, let us be an inn that brings healing and hope to the world. God, we just love you and thank you and praise you for what you've done in our lives.